Continuing our study in the Gospel according to Luke, we read from Luke chapter 19 this morning. Pay close attention. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word and for the mighty acts and teaching of your son, Jesus. As we enter into the study today, we pray that you would deliver us from every distraction, uphold us and strengthen us and give us clarity of thought, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and may every thought be pleasing to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What would it take for you to feel like a kid again? I know some of you kids are thinking, what are you, what are you talking about? I am a kid. I feel like a kid right now. I am a kid. But for you adults, you know, those of you who have mortgages and car payments and jobs and responsibilities, what, what would it take for you to feel young all over again? I know that your mind is weighed down with burdens. You have legitimate concerns for how things are going to turn out. You're worried about uh, your reputation and how other people see you, whether you're doing or saying the right thing, what would it take for you to put all of that aside, even for a moment, just for a couple of minutes, and like a child, to simply enjoy the present, to to not really worry about how you appear. A kid never thinks about how his hair looks when he's about to do something. He never, he never wonders, is my shirt tucked in before I do this thing? You know, uh, uh, to, to, for a couple of minutes to, like a child, not be overly concerned with the future or to overanalyze every syllable before you say it, just to abandon yourself to the joy of the present. What would it take for that to happen for you? Those times come as adults, but they're pretty fleeting and they're pretty rare. But they are there. I'll tell you what does it for me. The first baseball game of spring. You know, you get your ticket, you get your drink, you get your dog, and you walk out into the, in, into the seating and, and you smell the grass and you smell the stale beer and the popcorn and, and you hear that, that leather of the glove and the ball hitting the pocket of the glove and it's just like, yeah, I'm 10 years old again. That's, that's what makes me feel young again. Or when the chain turns loose at the top of a hill on a roller coaster and you hear that chunk and then nothing. And that moment, <laughs> that moment, I feel like a kid again. Or when you uh, go to the beach, that first beach trip of the year, and you put your feet in the water for the first 
time. That, that moment, that, that makes me feel like a kid again. And when you're in that moment, you, again, don't care how your hair looks. You aren't self-examining your own laugh. You're just soaking up creation and you're soaking up life. And you, you can't help yourself but burst out in joy and laughter. That's the kind of childlike joy that's been following Jesus around as he's made this trip from Galilee down to Jerusalem. There's this, this aura of joy that surrounds everything that Jesus does as he's healing and feasting and teaching. People's lives are being touched by Jesus. And for a moment, they're like children again. And so he commends that childlike faith. We read this last week where he says, don't, don't keep those babies away from me because that's the kind of joy, that's the kind of faith I'm looking for. And indeed, that's what, that's what follows Jesus around. People, when they come in contact with Jesus, they lose all sense of self-awareness. They shout, they rejoice, which means that they laugh and enjoy themselves. They run. There's more running to come in Luke's gospel, but there's been running. They make a scene. And in today's text, we see a man climb a tree. When's the last time you voluntarily climbed a tree for no good reason other than to just climb it? Adults, again, I know my son uh, lives in our front yard tree. But for all, all of us, uh, the older ones, how, when's the last time you just climbed a tree? Why do we, why do we uh, get so weary? Why do we get so uh, cynical and grouchy? It's because sin makes us old. Our own sin and the sins of other people, people's sins against us, make us old. It wears us down. It wears us out. We get gruff and cynical and grouchy. But the kingdom of God is light and it's peace, and it's joy, and the kingdom of God is gratitude, and happiness, and unspeakable, uncontrollable, uncontainable delight in everything that God is. Now, there's a time for weeping, as we'll see before we're done with this chapter today. Jesus weeps at the end of this chapter. There's a time for weeping, but our joy and our childlike faith is to never be completely consumed in sorrow. Our, our joy is never lost in sorrow. We are always on a trajectory through sorrow on to joy. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, says the psalmist. We're commanded to rejoice in spite of tribulation, in spite of persecution. We are still to rejoice, as Peter says in his epistle. In this you rejoice, though you have many trials. So our joy is never to be consumed in sorrow because you have a happy, blessed, joyful, sovereign God. And so we weep, and then we sort it out, and then we get on to joy. This chapter begins with that childlike joy demonstrated by this man Zacchaeus. The chapter is going to end in sorrow, but that sorrow that Jesus expresses at the end here is just another step toward that unspeakable joy, that greater joy that we all look forward to on Easter that we'll see at the end of Luke's gospel. So let's dive into the chapter as we're marching through Luke's gospel, we're taking a chapter a week. I'm not going to be able to cover every single detail. I'm not even going to try. But the goal here is to read it out loud, to hear Luke's gospel, and then to make a few comments and applications along the way. So we see Jesus getting close to Jerusalem, and he's passing through Jericho. Aha, Jericho. When we hear a city mentioned that has a lot of history to it, we ought to say, what else has happened in Jericho? Anything of note? Well, most notably, we remember Rahab, 
who was the woman who hid the Hebrew spies when Joshua sent men to spy out uh, Jericho and to see what it was going to take to to bring it down. Rahab hid (coughs) the Hebrew spies and she saved herself and she saved her house by transferring her loyalty from the king of Jericho to the God of Israel. There's a transfer of loyalty going on in Rahab's uh, life. And she demonstrates her loyalty to Israel and to Israel's God by sticking her neck out and hiding the the spies. Now, as we meet Zacchaeus, we'll see a a man who's entangled with the, the, the government of his day, with Herod and Caesar and the Roman Empire. But now he transfers his loyalty from Herod and Caesar and he, he transfers it to the new Joshua, to Jesus, whose, whose name is Joshua. Jesus and Joshua have the same name. So just as salvation came to the house of Rahab, so now Jesus is going to tell Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house as well. And when the judgment comes through that Jesus is going to talk about in Luke chapter 19, when the Roman army comes through, it's going to be men like, like Zacchaeus, who, like Rahab, have uh, the, the blood on the door and, the, and the, 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 the lentils of the door, have the scarlet thread hanging out the window. It's going to be those who are marked by the blood of Jesus who are going to be spared, who are going to be delivered through this great tribulation to come. Well, who is this man, Zacchaeus? Well, he's a chief tax collector. We've met tax collectors before. Matthew was a tax collector. But this man is a chief tax collector. He's not just an IRS employee. He's more like a kingpin. He's in charge of uh, other tax collectors. You know, tax collectors in this time of human history in Rome, they made their living by charging people more than they owed. If you owed a certain amount, uh, then I, as a tax collector, I'm going to come by and I'm going to collect more than what you owe because I've got to feed myself and also I've got to pass a little dab, a little taste up the line. And so I've got to collect more because I've got to pass some more up. I've got to pass up what you owe, but I've got to eat as well. And this is how they make their living. Well, here Zacchaeus is a man close to the top of the pyramid. He has many men working for him. He's rich, we find out. And we assume that he's rich because he's had crooked dealings. He hasn't been honest. He, uh, tax collectors were notoriously dishonest. <clears throat> Despite being large in power, despite being large in wealth, he is short in stature, we learn. And he wants to see Jesus very desperately. But because he's short and because there's such a great entourage following Jesus, as we saw last week, the blind man has to call out to Jesus over and over and over and people try to hush him. It's because now at this point, there's this great crowd of people before and behind and on every side of Jesus. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, so he runs ahead of the parade as the, as the great group comes through Jericho. He runs ahead of the parade and he climbs up a tree. This is not dignified in any sense at all for a rich man, a wealthy man, a powerful man to climb a tree. He would have gotten sweaty. He might have gotten dirty. He might have torn his robe on a branch. Um, But something's going on with this man where he doesn't really care about how he's perceived. He doesn't care about what people think of him. He wants very desperately to at least see Jesus, if not to make contact with him. What kind of tree does he climb? Well, the scriptures say he climbs a sycamore tree. 
And there's a variety of tree that grew in that part of the world, still grows in that part of the world, called a ficus sycamorus. In other words, it is a sycamore fig tree. And this kind of tree would have been a good climbing tree. Not, not a tall pine, not a, not a mighty oak, but one of those, you know what I'm talking about, boys, right? Young boys, the good climbing tree, right? You don't, you don't climb a pine tree, but those good, you know, fruit trees, those are good, those are good climbing trees. So it's got low-hanging branches that you can grab onto and you can clamber up. It's interesting, though, that if this was, and I'm, I'm just I'm just thinking through this. If this was a sycamore fig tree, how many times has Jesus said that he's looking for fruit on the fig trees? He's looking, he's going around and he even rebukes a fig tree later on for not bearing fruit. Jesus uh, is looking for fruit on the fig trees. And, and I also don't need to remind you how many times in the scriptures, fig trees are used as symbols of Israel. Fig trees over and over and over come up um, as a symbol for Israel. Also an allusion back to the garden, right? When, when Adam and Eve cover themselves in the leaves of a, of a fig tree. Um, so, so the fig tree is all throughout scripture. Jesus is looking for fruit on the fig tree. And today he finds fruit hanging up there in a fig tree. He sees this funny little man you know, doing something that, that no one is expecting, but he's bearing the kind of fruit that Jesus is looking for. In all of his conflict with the Pharisees and the synagogue rulers and the lawyers, Jesus is not finding fruit where you would expect to find it. When you go to Israel as uh, Jesus went, you would expect to find fruit in the synagogue. Well, what does Jesus find in the synagogue? Jesus finds unclean spirits. He finds demon-possessed people. He finds hurt and broken people that nobody has any solution for. Nobody has any answers for their problems. That's what Jesus finds at the synagogues. But away from, away from there to find the humble and the receptive and those who know that they need salvation, he has to go away from the centers of authority and he goes away from the centers of respectability and he finds the outsiders, the outcast, the forgotten. That's where he finds fruit. And again, that's where he finds fruit on this day. So Jesus picks this apple. Jesus picks this fig, uh, as it were. Passing through Jericho, Jesus sees Zacchaeus up in the tree. He stops and Jesus says, come down. What are you, what are you doing up there? And, he, and Jesus boldly invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for supper. I, imagine whatever uh, celebrity or athlete that you really would like to spend time with, somebody you really admire, maybe an author, what would you do if that person came up to you and said, hey, what are you doing for supper tonight? I don't know, McDonald's, Taco Bell, I don't know. Well, I know what you're doing for supper. I'm coming to your house. I mean, what, what kind of response? Yeah, absolutely. You'd call home and say, y'all, clean up, pick up, get it together. Guess who's coming over? <clears throat> well, that's what Jesus does. He presumes upon this man and says, I'm coming to your house for supper. And Zacchaeus is overjoyed. Zacchaeus, we read, came down from the tree and received him joyfully. He thought, if I could just get a glimpse of him, and now he's coming over for supper. I can't believe this. He's rejoicing. Jesus is happy. Zacchaeus is happy. Heaven is rejoicing. But there's this grumbling and complaining and this harping from the league of the perpetually disappointed, the league of the perpetually sour-faced, comes the, the complaint. Oh, He's going over to eat with a sinner again. That's just like him. This is, this is why you can't trust this Jesus. It's because he's always eating with these people. Don't, doesn't he know who this man is? He's a tax collector. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Re remember this. 
If people could always find something to criticize about Jesus, people could always find something to complain about with Jesus, who is the only perfect man who has ever lived. If they can find something wrong with him, is it any surprise to you that people can find something wrong with you or us? Perpetually disappointed people complainers and harpers and backbiters and, and, and cynics will always find something to complain about. There is nothing in all of the whole cosmos that you can't complain about. People complain about the sun as if there's something we can do to change its heat or its light. People complain about the weather. Uh, there's, there's, if they can find something to complain about with Jesus, then they can certainly find something to criticize in me. And yet always remember, these people are not your audience. These people are not going to justify you or damn you by their short-sighted, misinformed, ignorant opinions. It is God who justifies you. It is God who rewards you. He is the one who sets your value. So here, in spite of the carping, this cloud of joy continually surrounds Jesus and the people who embrace him, embrace him joyfully. So sometime that night at the dinner party, Zacchaeus stands up, he calls Jesus Lord, and then he demonstrates that he's Lord by not just saying, I'm sorry, but he demonstrates repentance by, by obeying God's law. Look, look how differently Zacchaeus responds to Jesus uh, as compared to that rich young ruler we saw last week. Both of them are wealthy. Both of them have authority. Both of them are rulers. Both of them encounter Jesus. But the rich young ruler, remember, he goes away sad because he won't sell all that he has and follow Jesus. Zacchaeus now is exuberant. He's not sad. He's giddy with excitement. He's joyful over this change in his life. And he voluntarily gives away over half of his goods to the poor. This bookends the the lesson with the rich young ruler. The point is, there are some folks who read that rich young ruler story and think, you know what God wants us to do? He wants us to sell everything. And only when we have taken vows of poverty can we really be pleasing to Jesus. And that's not the application of that lesson. The, 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 the application of that is not that possessions are forbidden because Zacchaeus doesn't do that. Zacchaeus doesn't give away everything, does he? He gives away half. The point is one that we heard back with that parable of the unjust steward. Remember that parable? The point of that parable was that the, the kingdom of God and the people of the kingdom of God have a new way of managing wealth. We have a new way of ruling under Jesus. We don't use it oppressively. We don't worship money. Hey, you want to know what Christian's attitude is toward money? We give it away. How do you know we give it away? It's because in the middle of worship, we stop and we give away money. It's part of our worship before God. We don't come before God empty-handed. We say, here, here, take this stuff. This is how we manage wealth. We give it away. Uh, to God and to his kingdom and to mission works and to benevolent ministries. You see, this is, this is how we manage money. And this is what Zacchaeus demonstrates skillfully. He gives away half to the poor. And then with the other half, he starts to pay off those he's defrauded. How much does he repay? He says he repays fourfold anything that he got, got by extortion. This is more than what God's law required. If you gained money by extortion, you were supposed to repay it plus one-fifth or 20% under God's law. So you would, you would restore what you took plus interest. You, because by taking someone's wealth, you've taken away their opportunity to use it as they wish. And so when you restore it, you restore it with interest. Uh, 
But Zacchaeus gives more than 20%. He restores it fourfold. Zacchaeus is treating this more like if he were to steal their livestock, not just skimming off the top, but stealing a man's livelihood. Because also in the law, if you stole a sheep, if you, if you stole an animal, you had to restore it fourfold. And, and so Zacchaeus is actually doing more than what's required of him by, by looking for the maximum penalty, the maximum uh, repayment that the law required. So when Zacchaeus stands up and he says this, he says, look, Jesus, uh, you're my Lord, you're my King. Half of everything that I have, I'm giving to the poor. With the rest of it, I'm gonna start repaying everybody that I've defrauded, everybody that, that, that I've stolen from, and I'm gonna pay them fourfold. And then Jesus says, Zacchaeus, today, salvation has come to your house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Zacchaeus thought that he was looking for Jesus, when in fact this whole day Jesus has been looking for him. He thought by climbing that tree, I'm gonna see Jesus, but Jesus knew when he got up that morning, he said, I got an appointment. Jesus knew where he was gonna eat supper that night. It was not a, it was not a, 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 a impromptu thing for Jesus. He had this on his calendar because Jesus was already seeking uh, Zacchaeus. And this is true of all seekers. All seekers are seeking because they have already been sought. Jesus has already been seeking them. So now after we read about this great conversion of this steward of the new age, this, this man is going to rule in God's kingdom because he's showing right now his repentance. He's showing how he treats his wealth. He submits it all to Jesus. So after this, Jesus tells another parable about the lazy, ineffective stewards of the present age. How many times have we heard Jesus talk about money in just the last few chapters? Uh, why is the question. And think about that as we read this parable and as, as we proceed. Um, verse, verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 11, Jesus picks up with this parable. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas or minas and, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and he sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. For I say to you that to everyone who will be given and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. 
This sounds a lot like the parable of the talents that we read in Matthew's gospel, but there are some significant differences. This is not the same parable. Most notably, in this parable, everybody receives the same amount. In the parable of the talents, there's a graduated amount that the different servants receive. So this parable has a slightly different flavor to it. In Luke's narrative, Jesus is almost to Jerusalem. He's, he's right on the outskirts of the city, and everybody's wondering what's going to happen when he gets there. Out, is the kingdom going to come immediately? And with this parable, Jesus is saying, well, in fact, the kingdom is here. It's coming also with both judgment and mercy. Those who have been faithful with the riches I have entrusted to them are going to rule with me. Those who have rejected the riches that I've entrusted to them or haven't invested them or have been poor stewards over them, those are going to be judged. So to, to underscore this point, Jesus tells this story. A certain nobleman goes away to receive a kingdom. He calls 10 servants and to each servant he gives a mina. Now a mina was a coin which equaled about three months wages. Not enough to retire on, but a pretty good sum, a pretty good amount of money. And he says, the, the, the master says to his servants, do business until I come. That's the order. That's the command. Do business. He doesn't tell them exactly how to do business. He doesn't tell them how he wants it invested. He just says, take this and do something with it. Put it to work. I'm giving you this to be productive with. Make something, invest, get busy. Well, things don't go well with the nobleman when he's away. That when he goes to receive this kingdom, the people of that kingdom revolt. And he comes back home and he says, well, what's been going on at home? And he calls his servants to account. He gave the same amount to all 10 servants. There were 10 servants and there were 10, 10 coins. To all 10, he gave the same. But we only hear about three of them. We only hear how three of them fared. The first man invested his master's money and he brought back a thousand percent. He had one, he turned it into 10. Well done, good servant. The master says, you've been faithful over little. Now I'm going to give you authority over 10 cities. The second man comes. He says, I've got a 500% profit for you. Not as much as the first man, but I show a profit, 500%. He turned one into five. Great, very respectable. That's what I'm looking for. You will have rule over five cities. The third man comes. And though the command was, go do business, he didn't do any business. He didn't do anything. He hadn't invested the money. He, he hadn't put it to work. He did nothing. He hid the money in a handkerchief, despite being commanded, go do business. Well, the servant starts to make excuses. I did this because I feared you. You are a tough customer. You are a hard man. You're not a merciful man, which doesn't make sense. If you know that your boss is a hard man to deal with, wouldn't you be more dedicated to obeying him and to making him happy? Why doesn't this motivate him to action instead of passivity? And the master said, you could have just given it to the bank. I mean, that's not, that's, that's not gonna get you the best interest, but it would have gotten me something, but you didn't even do that. I entrusted my wealth to you and you hid it. You put it in a Kleenex and you stuck it in your pocket. That's what you did with it. You didn't, you didn't obey me. You weren't. You weren't faithful. Now, now why, why does this servant respond this way? Oh, you're a hard man. You're, tough, you're, you're a tough man to deal with. Because Jesus wants us to look at this servant, and he wants me and you to see ourselves when we say to God, God, aren't you being a little bit tough on me? You, you haven't given me all the same opportunities you've given other people. 
In fact, you've given me a hard life. You've put me in a tough place. I haven't gotten everything that I deserve, God. You've, you've burdened me with temptations. You've, you haven't gifted me in the ways that you've gifted some of your other servants. Jesus wants us to hear our own voice in the words of this servant. Because in spite of whatever great difficulty and whatever great hardship you and I may face, he has still entrusted us with obligations and responsibilities to obey, to serve, to love, and to do business with the riches that he has invested in us. And we don't get to say, well, life is too hard. I don't have the time. I'm too busy. I've got other things to do. I, he doesn't want those excuses. He doesn't, he doesn't respect those excuses. We, we don't get to focus on what we haven't been given, but what we have been given and invest that. We leverage that. We use that. That's what he expects us to do. And the context of this parable is that Israel has not been faithful with the riches she has been given. She's been given the law. She's been given the land. She's been given the temple. She's been given the festival cal calendar full of all kinds of celebrations and things that she was supposed to use to draw on the Gentiles. She's invested none of that. None of that has been leveraged. She's hidden it. She's buried it. She hasn't given it to the world. And so even what she has is going to be taken away from her. And just as the master in the parable returns to subdue and slay the rebellious kingdom that hasn't submitted to him, now Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem to begin the conquest of that city. After he tells this parable is when he leaves to go into the city. Let's pick up from verse 28 and we'll uh, work quickly through the rest of this chapter and conclude. Verse 28. When he said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? You shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread out their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him and said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Palm Sunday is still five weeks away, so we're hitting this a little early. But this is one of the critical events in the life of Jesus that the church calendar brings us around to remember every year. This is Jesus coming to declare his verdict on Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus now initiates the events that are going to lead him to the cross and to the grave and to the resurrection. So many details are layered in here. We're only going to get to a few today. Jesus stands outside the city. And he tells his disciples, go and find a specific colt that has never been ridden. This colt has been prepared for this day and for this purpose. And Jesus has need of him. And I can't imagine what the owners of that animal would have thought as these strange men come and just lead him away. And what are you doing with my animal? Well, the Lord has need of him. Okay, you know, bye, see ya. And then, and then word starts to spread though. Who is actually using this colt? Well, it's Jesus. 
The city is swelling with pilgrims in town for Passover. Jesus has brought his own great crowd of people and the news starts to spread. Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and all of them know the prophecy of Zechariah. This rings in their ears. Rejoice so greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. And so when they see this and they hear that this is happening, the air is electric with excitement. Israel's kings ride on donkeys and those who are paying attention say, here we go, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming to gather his army. He's going to establish the kingdom of Israel and he's going to throw off the tyranny of Herod and Caesar. They're still not clear about how all this is going to happen. As Jesus rides into town, as he rides into the city of Jerusalem, the enthusiasm hits a crescendo. The people are rejoicing and praising God for all the things that they've seen. They sing Psalm 118. A lot of these people are going to be the ones who've joined the traveling party along the way. And of course, the Pharisees are there again to complain and to rain on the parade. They say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Their frustration is reaching a fever pitch at the same time that Jesus's popularity hits its peak. These Pharisees are the men in the parable that he just told, the men who don't want Jesus, the, the king ruling over them. They reject Jesus and everything that he's about in spite of all that he's done. So Jesus tells these men, if, if I tell these people to be quiet, even the stones are going to cry out and rejoice at what's going on here. Remember how John the Baptist said, uh, that God could turn uh, stones into sons of Abraham. Here now Jesus is saying the same thing. These, these stony hearts of the Pharisees are less likely to praise God than the rocks on the ground. That's how far away they are from understanding what's going on. So as the people are praising and singing, Jesus draws nearer to the city. Uh, Jesus begins to weep. Verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known... Even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation." If you've ever wondered what Jesus has been talking about this whole time with references to judgment and tribulation, here he articulates it clearly. He's not talking about the end of space or the end of time. He's not talking about uh, the end of planet Earth. He's talking specifically about the judgment of Jerusalem by the Roman armies. And this is going to happen very soon within the generation. Though Jesus is extending a short window of repentance, just as Jonah did when Jonah came to the city of Nineveh. Here Jesus is outside the city, coming into the city, pleading for repentance. Just take this, this offer that's being extended you. Now's the time to surrender. But they don't. And they don't receive their king. They're blind and deaf to everything going on around them in spite of this wake-up call. Let's finish the chapter and see what Jesus does when he gets to the city. Verse 45. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. 
So the chapter begins with Jesus bringing salvation to the house of Zacchaeus. And now he brings, at the end of the chapter, he brings judgment to his own house. Here again, mismanagement of riches is at the center of this judgment. The, the temple is not a place of worship for all nations. It's not a house of prayer for the world. It, it, it is, uh, the, the, the treasures haven't been invested among the Gentiles. What is it? What is the temple now? It's a den of thieves, literally uh, brigands, revolutionaries is the word. The temple has become a place for nationalistic zealots to plot and conspire rebellion against Rome. John the Baptist said that Jesus is coming to clean out his threshing floor. And what does the temple sit on but the old threshing floor that David bought uh, for, the, for the, the lot of land for, to build the temple on? This is what Jesus is doing. He comes in, he turns over some tables, he knocks some things around, he runs some people out. After he leaves, they go right back to what they're doing. Jesus doesn't, doesn't clean up and completely sanitize the temple on this day, but what this is is a warning shot. This is a sample judgment. This is a taste of the wrath that is coming for the temple and for the city. And what's so shocking about this action is this expectation, Messiah's gonna come, he's gonna gather forces, and then we're gonna mount an attack on Herod's palace, or we're gonna go attack the nearest Roman garrison. But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes into the city of Jerusalem, and what does he attack? He puts the crosshairs on the temple. That's what he comes to judge. Israel's mighty conquering general rides into the city and declares war on the temple. This highest physical symbol of the riches that, that Israel had received. They, they've been called out to be his special worshiping people, a kingdom of priests. And now they've just wasted that inheritance in their pride, in their self-righteousness, in their gatekeeping, in their idolatry, in their hypocrisy. They have wasted the gifts that God has given them. The conquering king comes to his own city riding on, on a donkey. He comes weeping extending an offer of peace to his rebellious subjects, but his people are not submitting to his benevolent leadership. Now, there are many outside the city who do recognize him as king. However, like, like Zacchaeus calls Jesus Lord, they submit by showing their obedience. They submit everything to his rule. Like Zacchaeus who says, I'm yours, Jesus. I'm your loyal subject. I submit my livelihood to you. I submit my money to you. My money is subject to your law. How I make money, how I use it, how I restore those who I've defrauded. Again, how much has, have these last few chapters focused on money and the management of money? If the way we use money is important to Jesus, and if the way we use money is subject to God's law and Jesus requires us to have a certain attitude toward it, that means everything that's attached to money is subject to Jesus, which means really nothing is outside of the jurisdiction of the, the kingship of Jesus. We, we tend to think, well, it's my money, it's my business. They're my kids, they're my business. It's my job, it's my business. It's my entertainment, it's my business. It's, it's my business. But Zacchaeus confesses to Jesus, no, 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 all of this is yours. I'm in complete submission to you. Here, I'll open the books. I'll get out the ledger. I'll show you my checkbook. I'll, I'll show you my bank statements. All of it, all of it, Jesus, is submitted to you. This is a very stark contrast, Zacchaeus' attitude. This is a stark contrast to these Pharisees whose opinions, 
whose complaints, whose rejection of Jesus keeps coming up. These are the subjects, again, in the parable who won't submit to the king. They're like the unfaithful servant who takes the riches entrusted to him and he folds them up in a napkin and he shoves it in his pocket. These people have this retreatist hermit mentality when it comes to the riches of the kingdom. They're hoarding it instead of investing it. And even while they're doing this, somehow they still feel superior to men like Zacchaeus because they're their own masters. They do not submit to the rule of their king. They refuse to come under Jesus's authority. So what happens to them? Well, what's coming? What did Jesus say is coming? Their crazy, nationalistic, zealous fervor is going to send them down a path of destruction that runs headlong right into the teeth of the Roman machine of death and destruction. That's where they're headed. And their world is going to come to an end. Everything they try to preserve is lost. Everything they try to hold on to is destroyed. The only kingdom that lasts is the one that Jesus leads, the one that Jesus announces, and, and his is, is the one that is the kingdom of life. Uh, here is the promise and the warning. So everyone that recognizes Jesus as king in, in all things has life. Everything that sum, is submitted to Jesus and his rule remains. Everything that is, is given up to him is blessed. It gains interest. It moves from glory to glory. But everything that's held back, everything that is hoarded, everything that is hidden away, everything that is protected from him, everything that rejects his reign and rebels against him, it's all lost. It's all destroyed. It's defeated. It falls apart. It disintegrates. It collapses under its own weight. It can't hold together. It is so clear when you and I look at the world that we live in and you see the suffering and the despair and the problems, problems again that seem to have no solutions. We're like, we're like the rulers of the synagogues with demon-possessed people and, and crippled people and people with, with medical and psychological and emotional problems, and it just seems to have no solution whatsoever. When we look at these things and the terrifying violence and the hatred and all manner of death and destruction, what you have is people and institutions and riches that have not been submitted to Jesus. In fact, they don't passively ignore him. They actively hate him and his reign. They despise him for who he is. And they hate all that his kingdom brings with it. They hate life. They hate beauty. They hate children and women and marriage. They're working overtime to turn good things inside out and upside down. And Jesus here and repeatedly exposes this divide, that there is no neutrality. There is no middle ground. There's no neutral territory. You are either like Zacchaeus, giving everything in submission to King Jesus, or you're like those who believe, oh, this is none of his business. Religion doesn't enter into economics, politics, education, science, industry. Religion has no place in that. And so we, we, we cordon off these areas that say Jesus doesn't rule over here. Let Jesus have Sunday morning, you know, hour and a half, whatever. If we can get away with an hour, we'll do an hour. That's where Jesus rules. Everything else belongs to us. That is upside down. That is inside out. That is a lie. 
That is a deceptive tool of Satan to say, Jesus doesn't rule over all of these things. The only things that survive, the only things that last are those that Jesus is honored in and through and those he's allowed to rule over. So, child of God, what have you got cordoned off? What are you saying? No, I really don't want Jesus to stick his nose in this over here. I'm fine with all this over here. The public stuff, the stuff that people see, but this other stuff, my internet usage, my entertainment, my money, my kids, my family relationships, my friends, all this is my stuff over here. Jesus, don't, don't look at this. Don't, 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 don't look at this. That's the stuff that dies. That's the stuff that disintegrates. That's what you lose. That's what is destroyed. Only, only what is submitted to him remains and has life beyond. Let's pray. Father, give us strength to confess those things and to reveal those things to you that we must submit to your leadership. Father, we receive King Jesus and all that he is for us and all the goodness and the benevolence and the sweetness that comes with following him, the childlike joy that comes in submitting to him. Father, we want that so desperately because we're miserable without him. We're confused and we're lost and we're desperate for his, his good uh, leadership over us. So Father, we submit ourselves to you and not just today, but tomorrow and the next day. Continue to remind us of this by your Holy Spirit, uh, of this of this demand and this this obligation that we have to obey him in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.